We are continuing with our reading from the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where finally Krishna started expounding the teachings about karma yoga, how to act with detachment, how to act in a spiritual way. It's been a long chapter and Krishna used the time to go through a multitude of subjects. It's such a rich, subject, such a rich chapter. Some of those of you who were here during the full commentary remember that we spoke about sacrifice, sacred action, so many things. <coughs> and finally Krishna has returned to the subject of action and he uses lots of arguments to show to Arjuna that spiritual, that action has to be done. Starting with a famous, 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 great word which says that action is superior to inaction. And you can always meditate on this statement when you are in a situation. Simply meditate on the action is superior to inaction to see what alternatives you have there. And finally, Krishna has shown that there is a way of acting wisely in full knowledge. He gives even himself as an example, not, an, not in an immodest way, but in a very simple, in a very straightforward way. He says, look at me, even I am in action, although I have nothing more to accomplish. I have achieved everything and yet I am here, born on this planet doing this and he gives a social reason to this. He says, if I wouldn't engage into action that all the beings would stop from action, which is a great metaphysical judgment. It's a great metaphysical statement in favor of the fact that the divine consciousness is alive and it's like the motor of the universe. It's like the heart of the universe, constantly pumping, pumping, pumping. Exactly as in Kashmirian mysticism, Spanda is the heartbeat of the universe and because of it, the whole universe is alive because of this movement between Shiva and Shakti. Exactly in the same way, Krishna defines it as action. He doesn't call it Spanda. He simply says action. The divine, even I, he says, the manifestation of the divine is always in action. If the divine stops from action, the whole universe stops from action. But if the whole universe stops from action, then on one hand, evolution is not possible anymore because evolution is the result of action, of life, and of flow. And if there is no action, actually there is no life. The whole universe becomes dead because consciousness, the presence of the divine consciousness, is in itself a form of action. The divine is the spirit behind everything else that enlivens it. But to enliven the universe is like you have to push, you have to act. That is why action primordially, primarily, starts with the action of the divine. And he concludes with a apparently very tough, but when we explained it, it was not that tough statement, where he said that let the wise man do not disturb the people who have not reached spiritual ripening wisdom and who are attached to action, Therefore, let established in the being said in that shloka, he should direct them to perform all actions, duly engaging in them himself. Only that he, the wise man, Krishna, the enlightened being, engages in actions with detachment, while the other people, if they don't understand the need of that, 
the enlightened being allows them to continue with their lives. So it's an important statement. I commented already on it. It's a very powerful statement, which says that when some people are not prepared for a certain threshold level in evolution, they just have to go through it the slow way, the hard way. Do all the things of life, live your life, do the things, and life will teach you. The, it's exactly like the wise man would be somehow a hypocrite, playing a double game, a double he himself or she, if it's a woman, the, the sage is detached and doing actions in the name of this divine principle, but it says, established in the being, he should direct them, the masses, the ignorant people, to perform all actions, like go and eat and sleep and procreate and drink, eat and drink and be merry and live your lives, and that's it. <clears throat> in all the religions you see that either we speak about Buddhist saints or Hindu ashramites or Christian mystics or Sufi dervishes or others, they don't go around, the great saints, they don't go around telling to people, what the heck are you doing, people? All of you are a bunch of stupid people. You are again wasting yourselves. Hasn't it been said that the treasure is in you? Like Rumi says in a poem, you are wasting yourself looking for treasure outside while there is a treasure inside your house. Like Rumi tells to everybody obliquely, you are wasting your time, whatever you try to do, career, money, children, whatever, you are wasting your time because the happiness is not there, the happiness is here. So you are searching it in all the wrong places. But even then, such wise people, they would not tell to people, so stop, stop, what are you doing? When Buddhist monks speak with the Thai families, they don't tell them, people, what are you doing? You are swimming in Maya up to your neck, you know, stop for God. Why do you have this social life? Why did you study university? Why did you do this and stop for God's sake? You are drowning yourself into this endless samsara. No. They tell them, how are you? How are the children? How... And in, in a certain way, you can see that inside, they don't seem to care about it. But they don't ask the questions just because of complacency or because of making a compromise, like they are playing a game of hypocrisy. I inside am hard as steel, and I'm not going to put up with any of this social shit and so on, and I'm not going to play the game of the world. But because I don't want people to feel offended, like I play too smart and I play too holy, when I'm talking to them, I'm asking them about their house, their cattle, the weather, the children, the what's happened in the society, you know, like if I care. It's a very strange double valuing of things, because it's not a hypocrisy, it's a universal thing, like it has always been known that great sages, both men and women, managed very easily to talk to people about their lives and their problems and issues and maybe give a wise advice from time to time. And therefore, they would never come and say, why don't you do what I do? Look what I did. I have withdrawn from the world and I'm doing my meditation and I'm not involving myself into all this. Why do you lose your... No, they never come with reproaches and saying, Krishna says that would be creating dissension, division. It would unsettle the minds of the ignorant. 
There are some people when they hear Jesus speaking, when they hear Rumi speaking, when they hear Krishna speaking, they react. It rings a bell immediately and they know that it's right and they want to do this thing. But if they don't, Krishna says don't unsettle them. Let them live their lives. They need to live more. They need to bang their head against the wall. They need to ripen. It's not their karma yet for this thing. The level of understanding is not there. Let them continue because the river is flowing. But should you tell them at least not to create any more karma? No, no. Even that not. Let them flow along with the river. The river always ends into the ocean. And therefore, why do you bother? If they want to do accelerated spiritual practice like you do, let them come to you and learn that. If they don't, don't unsettle them. Let them do their thing because the river certainly will take them where it took you. You are also the product of the same river. So the fact that you now reach the ripening which allows you to understand the words of Krishna, it's fine, it's good for you. Others around you will also understand that and others will not. They will continue flowing with the river because they are still too young for that. And Krishna then continues with his great explanation which he gave a little bit in the second chapter and now he comes back to it. It's a, one of the famous ways of looking upon it because he always wanted to say when you are spiritual you can always separate from the action. And he, like here in this case, of course, by talking about detachment. And he gives the reason. He explains again. And this explanation makes things so much deeper. He says, actions are, in every case, well, I'm reading the shloka number 27 now, actions are in every case performed by the gunas of nature. Those of you who studied level 2 in Agama, you know what the gunas are. I'm repeating, I'm saying it for those who have not reached that far in our curriculum. The gunas represent some very basic energies of nature. There are three gunas, three basic energies. Tamas, Rajas and Sattva. And those three energies are the causative factors. They are like at a very high level, at a causal level. And from the level of the causal world and Ajna Chakra, they produce actually the evolution of events. The gunas are energies which are as subtle as karma. They are energies which are very, very deep or otherwise said very, very high in the universe, in the universal structure. And that's why it's very difficult for a person to feel the gunas. Yogis learn to feel the gunas. We teach in the yoga courses how to start identifying. But even so, most yogis, not that they feel the gunas, but more that they understand the gunas. Like if I become extremely slow, extremely lazy, extremely sleepy, extremely narrow-minded, that shows an increase of tamas guna. Maybe I don't feel the tamas guna, but this heaviness and laziness and so on, at least I know logically and rationally that this usually comes from tamas guna. So the gunas in themselves are very, very essential energies, very basic, very subtle energies. And it is, of course, the theory, if you would go beyond the three gunas, beyond the three gunas you'd find only the yin and the yang, because the next, if you go above the three, the universe is made of three. 
Tamas Rajasadva. If you go further on the cosmic pyramid, then you find two. And then if you go even further, then you find one. That one is the unified consciousness, the divine, that is the inexpressible. Between the three and the one, there is the fundamental level of the two. The two being in the Taoistic philosophy, called simply yin and yang. And from those two, the whole universe moves. So here Krishna says, actions are in every case performed, or if you want, wrought, determined, caused by the gunas of nature. Lao Tzu would have said, well, if we look a bit deeper, the actions are in every case performed by yin and yang. It's because there is a yin and yang that the whole universe is boiling. All the dialectics, all the agitation is produced by duality. You create a duality, a polarity, plus and minus, and then the universe starts moving. And, but Krishna is not talking at that level. Krishna, classically in India, while in the Tantric tradition they will speak about the universe as a dance of Shiva and Shakti, the plus and the minus, the duality, generally the Hindu mysticism goes a little bit lower than that and prefers to look at the gunas. The gunas are less abstract than yin and yang, Shiva and Shakti, and thus they are a bit more easy to understand, although they do not express the truth at such a high level. So it's just models on every level, we have models of understanding of reality. And coming back to it, again, if Krishna would have spoken in a very tantric way like Abhinava Gupta, Krishna would have said actions are in every case produced by Spanda, which is the duality or the dance of Shiva and Shakti. That's the two. But in the classical Brahmanic tradition, old Vedic tradition, it was more fashionable to go down to one more level, to go to the number three, to the triadic definition of the universe. And he says, actions are in every case performed by the gunas of nature. Prakriti, the name of nature in the Sankhya, classical yoga philosophy, which Krishna is close to, Prakriti, mother nature, is made out of the three gunas. The first thing which defines Prakriti is the three gunas. And therefore, simply, he uses it like an evident statement. Prakriti is made out of the three gunas, and that's why everything which happens in Prakriti is just a game of those three gunas. But that's a very abstract way of thinking, no? Because action, let's take an action. Arjuna is about to do a holy war. People do this or don't do that or this happens. And Krishna says, it's all the gunas of the nature. Either we talk about a tsunami or an earthquake or a charitable action or a murder or this or that. Everything, either man-made action or non-made man action, is all of it produced by the gunas of nature which kind of absolves everybody. It says, whatever you did in your life, you didn't do it. You just egoistically think that you did it. But actually, Krishna says it was done by the gunas of nature. Like some of you says, oh, 10 years ago, I did something really stupid. And 15 years ago, I did something really marvelous. None of them is done by you. Neither the marvelous one, nor the stupid one. They are both of them done by the gunas. But because you cannot separate yourself from the gunas, out of ignorance, because you live in this maya, which makes you think that you are this, then you automatically think, I did it. That's a false sense of I, it's the ego which speaks, 
The Supreme Self would never say that. The Supreme Self will say, I'm sitting and watching here, and the Gunas did this and that. Which sounds, again, very weird, and very few people are prepared to think in this way. Those of you who are here a couple of months ago, remember that in the chapter number two, Krishna starts very abruptly because he simply makes this distinction between the higher self, the real self, and all the lower structures. And there he presents this jnana yoga type of angle to things where he simply says, ultimately you should realize that you are the self and you are not the body and all the rest. But that's very, very abrupt and it's very puritanic, very amazing. At the same time, very, very hard to swallow because many, many things cannot be understood by the limited human mind when it gets there. So, again, Krishna says, actions are in every case, anyway, produced, performed by the gunas of nature, by the three gunas. He whose mind is deluded by the sense of I, of me, that's the mental part of the ego, holds or thinks, I am the doer. It, one couldn't have said it clear. He says, he whose mind is deluded by egoism thinks, I am the doer. But like what if I gave uh, some alms, some food to a beggar on the street? Who is the doer? Of course, according to Krishna, the doer are the gunas. And if you want to take it beyond then, then the doer is God. But you never put it like I which is, again, sounds very alienating, and if it is not understood in a proper spiritual framework, then automatically it can think like <clears throat> this way of thinking is escapistic. It's like you never want to take any responsibility. You kick somebody on the street, and then you say, I'm not the doer. Only egoistic people think I am the doer. <clears throat> somebody got kicked, but I am not the doer. Krishna can do that in a spiritual way and he is compassionate and he is spiritual and he is wise and he is here with Arjuna involved in action all the way to the hilt and at the same time he simply says, I am seeing the things like I am not the doer. I am the witness of all this and the gunas of the nature do this. And he therefore advises Arjuna, that's how you should think. But anyhow, here he takes an x-ray, a radiography of the ignorance, of the way the ignorant person... So all the actions are determined or made in all cases by the gunas. He whose mind is deluded by egoism thinks, I am the doer. Here the word which is used is ahamkara, egoism. I just want to mention just for the importance of the details, that when Krishna speaks about the sense of I, the I-ness, he does not speak about egoism in the way in which we speak in the daily language. There are several levels of it. Egoism, when you say, oh, this person is full of egoism. We understand it as a selfishness coming from Muladharas, Vadistana, Manipura, a sort of me, 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 and it's an ensemble of feelings which give to the person greediness and very intense desires oriented only towards self-fulfillment and towards their instincts and self-importance and pride and arrogance and other things. 
But Krishna here speaks at a much more subtle level when he says the person whose mind is deluded by the sense of I. This is a philosophical thing and it has been commented many times. We define it in, yoga, in our yoga courses. We define it in our workshops on Kashmiri Shaivism and others because the sense of the I, which in Sanskrit is called ahamkara, is also a mental, very subtle thing. Like it can be that you as a person are not very selfish in the low meaning of the word. Like you are not a greedy, grabby, really pushy, obnoxiously selfish person. But still in your mind you have a sense of I-ness because you feel that it's me, me as opposed to the rest of the world. You isolate. There is something in your mind which hypnotizes you in saying I am separate from the rest of the world and I am not the supreme and we are it's a sense of I it's not as painful as the ego manifested in the low chakras this is just the ego at the level of Ajna chakra it's a sort of the last step of the ego the last milestone of the ego and it's a it's a sort of a mental egoism it's just a sense of separation by which one creates this illusion. So, of course, Krishna says this lasts until a very high level because many people will say, oh, I think I am going to move to Anahata Chakra and in Anahata Chakra I'm not going to be selfish anymore because I'm going to feel as full of love and kind and I'll have this Anahata thing. Krishna says that, that, that will not make you give up the sense of I. Even many loving and mystical people still think, I, my soul, I pray to God. But that's still a sense of separation. Therefore, the sense of I-ness persists even during the spiritual life for a long time. And the annihilation of it is actually inconceivable as long as you live in a human body in the physical world. Because then you wouldn't even be able to eat food or to draw air in your lungs if you wouldn't feel that you are a unit which is separate somehow from the rest of the reality. And that's why, remember, this is not just about egoism in the low meanings of it. It's about egoism in its most metaphysical understanding as the very function that perturbs the mind, creating a sense of difference. So, actions are performed by the gunas, he whose mind is deluded by the sense of I holds, I am the doer. But, and now Shloka 28, but he who knows the truth about the divisions of the gunas and their actions, like you have to understand what is tamas, what is rajas, what is sattva, how do they manifest, how do they act. But he who knows the truth about the division of the gunas and their actions, O mighty armed one, O Arjuna, knowing that it is the gunas which act upon the gunas, remain unattached. Like, he simply says, this is a form of meditation for detachment, that the gunas act upon the gunas. Of course, many people can think, what, so if you, for example, kill somebody or something, it's like, oh, the gunas have acted upon the gunas, I'm unattached. While theoretically that is true, in practice, I have shown many, many times, starting with the first lecture on karma yoga, which you have in the first levels of yoga, that actually things are not as simple as that, because having that state of detachment, one does not become irresponsible. 
Krishna is not irresponsible as going around and tipping objects and breaking things and accidentally hitting people, producing mayhem, and says, ah, the gunas are acting upon the gunas. I am not attached after all. It's not that because some people would understand that. Oh, you just uh, hypnotize yourself or just build up a philosophy in which you say everything which happens is a gunas upon. If I stole a million dollars from somebody or I uh, took somebody's uh, sexual happiness or I did this or I did that, I'm not guilty really. It's the gunas which act upon the gunas. That would open the door to irresponsibility. And you have been told from the very first level of yoga in the Karma Yoga lecture, that that's precisely the, the one major pitfall of the Karma Yoga. That some people can think that they are detached and on a mission from God and start doing things which come in fragrant, in violent contradiction with Yama and Niyama. And then, autom and then if, in, if indeed they were detached and there is a higher meaning, then of course they will get away with it because they are on a mission from God. But if, as usually it would happen, they actually were deluded by their own sense of importance and they lived the phantasmagoric dream, then when they die, they are going to bite the dust big time and discover that all was just a hypocrisy and a pretense and actually what they did was recorded thoroughly. And that is why, of course, this is a statement which is dangerous, but Krishna takes it in the positive way and mentions it in the spiritual way. He says, but he who knows the truth about the divisions of the gunas and their actions, like he himself, Krishna, knowing that it is the gunas which act upon the gunas, remain unattached. Like Krishna himself is on the verge of a war. How can, you know, there are people who can't even look in, watch, look in the television and see a scene of violence where blood is spurting. And Krishna, who is compassionate, empathic, full of heart, divine and coming from a sense of total oneness. Krishna, therefore, who is more sensitive than any person in this room, Krishna is going to be the charioteer on a battlefield and see lots of guts being spilled and lots of blood being wasted. And he simply says, you are not attached. He remains unattached. This war, which I'm war, it's a gunas acting upon the gunas. Like humanity is built in such a way that they need see things like this. When you look at the human history, you unfortunately see that in every human civilization, in every human culture, there is a percentage of 10, 20, 30, whatever percent of people who are restless, fiery, they want adventure, bungee jumping, violent sports, uh, extreme sports, and that if they don't do that, these people are the ones who become soldiers of fortune, mercenaries, they want to, to take money from other people, to beat them up, to deal drugs, to have a sense of power. Like, they simply are restless. Like, it is like I was wondering a couple of weeks ago when I saw this movie about the American guy who got his hand caught under a boulder in the Grand Canyon or something like this. And he was 127 hours isolated. And, you know, it's like, when I saw the beginning of that movie, it was clear from the beginning, this is one of those restless people will fire up their asses and the world would be a much happier, better place if we wouldn't have such people. If they would all be drowned in one go, then our planet would become a peaceful place. But guess what? 
Most of these people, for example, they are the fiery people, such as people born with lots of fire in their horoscopes. And they can't stay quiet. And these people need some action. These are the people who want to climb on the roofs and trumpet the truth to everybody. These are the people who are hyperactive and want to do lots of things. And these people are the ones who become uh, soldiers of fortune, Wall Street brokers, whatever, because they want to do something extreme. You know? And when I saw this guy with his arm caught there, you no know, part of my spirit said, this guy really looked for it. You know? Like that's what every person with fire up their ass will get eventually, you know. So this guy at least got it quickly. And like a, you know, like a beast, he had to severe his own arm, you know, like he had, the only way to get out was to cut his own arm with an army knife, you know, just like the hard way. He had to break his, l and he basically cut off his own arm to be able to, and finally he escaped with life, and he should have kissed the ground in front of God every day. He should have been grateful till the end of his life that instead of dying a pathetic death, he could at least, you know. And then in the blurb in the end of the movie said, Jack Guldendal or whatever his name was, continued climbing mountains and being a canyon explorer. It's like, sure, next time he will lose the next arm, the other arm. He still has one arm to cut off, you know. It's like asking for trouble all the time. Krishna knows such people are born, it's the statistics, it's the bell curve, it's the Gauss curve of distribution. Among the people on this planet you'll find settled people, sattvic, balanced. You'll also find people who have lots of fire and they can't sleep in the night because they haven't done something wild in the day which passed. And they have to do something outrageous or else their life seems to have no juice, no flavor to it. And therefore, Krishna understands this and he says, you know, the, the gunas are acting upon the gunas. Even war. Why is there war? Nations at the borderline shooting on each other for just five meters of the borderline should be a hundred meters further up or further down. Pfft, all sorts of things, you know, where do people hire mercenaries to do the Blackwater things, to torture prisoners in prisons, to do all the like everywhere, all the time in this humanity you find always that there has been cannon fodder, people who are willing to go that mile, people who are willing to go to that length. Why? Why can't people just sit quiet and smile and be happy? No, we look upon and we say the sages are the ones who have a seraphic smile on their lips and they can just meditate and be happy. Like, why can't people be happy with little? Why can't people be happy with peace? Why can't people be... No, some people cannot. And that's why periodically on earth we have war. Because they will, and if there is not war, people have to fight, they have to play football or something. They have to break each other's bones. They have to crush each other's noses. They have to get drunk and fight with each other in the stalls. They have to yell and scream obscenities and manifest their aggression and so on. And actually many societies know if we don't have football matches or something, then those people who are just football hooligans... They would go and make war. So at least football is a way of discharging this inherent uh, violence in people. Of course, it's not the wise way. That's not what Ramakrishna says you should do. That's not what Krishna says you should do. But more than everything, Krishna cannot afford to be a utopian person. 
Like he like Jesus, he can say, I wish that there will come a day when the lion will lie together with the lamb and there shall be no more killing. That's the ideal, that everybody will become wise and there will be no more need for this outrage, for this showing off, for all these violent manifestations and so on. But until that day will happen, Jesus as well as Krishna, as well as Ramakrishna and Milarepa and as well as Rumi and Saint Teresa of Avila, they all knew that most people will continue being just the way people are. Much as we want that everybody should become hallowed and peaceful and sattvic and non-violent and that, and the unfortunate truth is that only a percentage of people will reform themselves and the others will stay just the way they were. Even when Jesus came and 50,000 people were martyrized just for confessing, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, then afterwards, a few centuries later, there were still wars, mercenaries, all, all the shit, like the society was based on the same violence, paying people to kill other people, manufacturing weapons, dirt, misery, and all that stuff. It's there all the time. And Jesus didn't stop it and Krishna didn't stop it because that's how it is with the river. It's exactly like somebody floats on the river and everybody wishes that the river would be crystal clear. But everybody knows that the river is carrying some sediments with it and the water of the river is sometimes not limpid, not translucent, simply because that's the nature of the river. So when you want to take spirits which five lives ago were chimps or gorillas or baboons, and you want to turn them into Buddhas, then there will be some misery. Between baboon and Buddha, you have to go through all sorts of demonic and inferior stages. Like not everybody is born as an evolved and pure and clean human being. There are lots of samskaras and inferiorities and this. And Krishna knows it. And if you would just divide, decide by divine decree, from tomorrow on we allow on the face of this earth only clean, pure, sattvic, lovely, spiritual, bodhisattva human beings, then what are you going to do with all the semi-baboons? They don't have any place to incarnate anymore. Then you shut down this world for them and told them, go wherever you want, we don't receive you in our world. You don't have place on the face of this earth because we want the face of this earth but the face of this earth has to take unevolved spirits as well because they also need to have a place to evolve and those unevolved spirits they will create a world of demonic tendencies of egoism of violence of this and that that's why Krishna is aware and he says he who knows that the gunas act he who knows the truth Almighty Arjuna about the divisions of the gunas and their functions knowing that the gunas as sense, senses move amidst the gunas and the, as the sense objects is not attached. So one is not attached. One can save oneself. One can ring the bell for others who want to save themselves. But one cannot change the river because we did not create the river. It is not I and you who are the authors of the evolution on this earth. We did not create this solar system and decided that on this third planet there is going to happen evolution of souls in the way it does on planet earth. And that's why we can't influence that. We can influence ourselves and maybe we can interact with some dear person 
who are like-minded and share this truth. There is a momentum of the spiritual truth from one generation to the next. There will always be a minority of men and women who are interested in spirituality and who manage to extract themselves from the river. If the river is muddy, then build a raft and don't lie directly in the muddy water. Get out of it. <clears throat> and he continues with uh, in the shloka 29, in the strophe 29. Those deluded by the gunas of nature are attached to the actions of the gunas. Like you do something and you think, I am doing it. You can't separate from it. No, like I am restless. Let's suppose I am one of these fiery, restless persons who has no peace. Then I am doing something outrageous. Even in my yoga. No, I am doing and everybody has learned, I don't know, let's say Jiva Balasana and does Jiva Balasana and says, oh, this Jiva Balasana is a bit difficult if you go more than five minutes. And then I am the diehard. And instead of doing bungee jumping or instead of doing... Uh, paragliding or skydiving, then when my teacher teaches me Jiva Balasana and says Jiva Balasana is really good, then I go and stay in the yoga hall and try to do it for one hour. This is a person who has exchanged bungee jumping for exaggerate practice of yoga. Like that person, even when going in yoga, feels like overdoing it. But unfortunately, this overdoing is unwise and unequal because you overdo it for 10 days and then you get bored and you start doing bungee jumping again or something. It's uneven. If you would manage to do it 40 years, then that would be wisdom, that would be tapas, that would be willpower, that would be commitment. But if not, remember that this manifests in spirituality. We can see in spirituality people who do spirituality every day, slowly, they go towards their goal. That's what Francis of Assisi says. Francis of Assisi says, if you want your dream to be, take your time, go slowly. That's the law in spirituality. Take your time, go slowly. But if you are a very wild person, you cannot take your time because you want to bang your head. You want to bleed. You want to feel pain. You, want, you need some exaggerately intense experience even as a yogi. I know of a yogi who could not do the lotus pose. And then he took his... He said, how can I not? I'm a yogi. I'm you know, spiritual, whatever. And he probably had done yoga for a couple of years. And then he took his right foot. He put it here and said, the lotus pose, what's so difficult now? It's just some ligaments. With, and he made, and he broke his knee. And then guess what? What would any intelligent person do? Say, boy, I have been a bit too impulsive, and I've gone too far, you know, so stupid me. He did it with the other leg as well. In five minutes, he broke both his knees. That's what some people do even in yoga. They don't take their time and go slowly because they don't have time. They have to catch a train. They have a very important train to catch somewhere. And even yoga and meditation and everything must happen quickly and in a very spectacular way. That's a very skewed understanding. And those people sooner or later, either they quit spirituality or they will undergo 
lots of painful transformation because they basically bang their head against the wall and they will taste lots of bitterness. That is why Krishna, uh, I'm sorry, Krishna here says, those deluded by the gunas of nature are attached to the action of the gunas. Instead of me seeing, I'm restless. I'm, I'm not attached to this. This is not me. There is just a restlessness in my body. And I need to drink, to eat kapha, food, to calm down, to stay in the shadow, to take cold showers, to calm down. No, they, they are attached to it. They think it's me. Oh, me, me, I'm so on. No? I met again people in yoga. They loved only the strong yoga techniques. Every yoga technique is strong. Every yoga technique is profound. Perhaps one of the most profound yoga techniques that you will ever do in your lives is Shavasana. The relaxation. Shavasana is the first technique which you learned in this yoga course, which can take you all the way to the state of Samadhi. But you see, for many people, it's too bland. Shavasana, is that all? Like you do the relaxation? Yes, you can reduce the whole yoga to relaxation. If you'd be doing perfect Shavasanas from now for the next 12 years, every day, you would reach states of enlightenment and Samadhi. There is a yoga just of Shavasana. Because Shava is Shiva. Shiva is Shava. Shiva is the corpse. Shavasana is Shivasana. It's as simple as that. And it activates your Sahasrara when you do it perfectly. No? But that is the point. Some people don't. Some people want Udhyana Banda. Some people want Agnisara Dauti. Some people want some yoga with a rubber string tied around their ankles if possible. Haven't you got any bungee jumping yoga around here? Because I need to feel that I'm alive. I need to feel that that is, again, it demonstrates a rudimentary, a sort of excess of the gunas, an imbalance of the gunas. And Krishna says those are attached to the action of the gunas. They cannot separate and say, this is not me. This is just some fiery thing. I ate too much chili yesterday, probably. And today, look how fiery I am, you know. But it's not me. Like, to be able to detach from it. To, to look upon it, if not as upon a problem, at least to look upon it with detachment and to say that's a very... For example, Maananda Mai was astrologically a Libra, an air sign. And because of an air sign, she tended to manifest many, many things of the Vata typology, which in yoga is a typology which sometimes creates problems because the Vata... The air element is restless and unstable. And yogis are supposed to be able to sit in meditation and therefore to be stable. But a vata person would sit 10 minutes and then become impatient and restless. Maananda Mai, even though in meditation she was brilliant, she was perfect, nevertheless in her daily life she had no less than three ashrams in India. And she was periodically moving from one to the other. She was triangulating India constantly. Four months in one ashram, four months in the other one. For one in Bengal, one in Uttar Pradesh, one in... And somebody asked her, what are you, why the heck don't you just establish? Everybody knows you and people would follow you wherever you are. You are a legend. Why don't you just settle down for God's sake? 
And she said, oh God, you know that I am a restless girl. And I, like, see, she played with it. She could make a joke out of it. I'm a Vata person. I have to move a lot because that's my Vata nature. But she could be detached spiritually from it. Like, it's the Gunas acting upon the Gunas. Down here, I am a very Vata person and have some restlessness. So for me, I have to have three ashrams instead of one. I have to have three dwellings. I have to live in three cities because I get bored if I live in just one city. That's not because she was not wise. If she wouldn't have been wise, she would have tried to find a stupid justification to it. But because she was wise, she could make a joke out of it. Like she simply said, oh, why do I have three ashrams? Just because I'm a restless girl. Basically, she said, my gunas are like this and they are just blowing me like the wind all over India. What can I do? I'm just an airy person and I'm not an earth person who likes to catch roots and sit in one place. I'm airy. I will just keep on moving. That's the way it is. As great wisdom, only with wisdom you can understand how wise actually, how divine Mananda Mai was <clears throat> because she could separate she could assume it, but at the same time she could separate. She look upon it with detachment. And he repeats the injunction. He says, those deluded by the gunas of nature are attached to the actions of the gunas. Let, like everything they do, they make children, they make a career, they build a house, they do this or that. They are attached to it. It's like it's them, it's their lives. Let not him who knows the whole, he who knows the, read the big picture, disturb the ignorant who know only the part. Like, it doesn't serve anything. Let people first ask you for instruction, and then you can instruct them because it means they are prepared to learn more. Do not disturb them. The people who are happy with their house, career, bourgeois life, newfoundler, new newfoundler dog or whatever it is, let them be happy with it. If somebody has a Labrador Retriever dog and is happy with it, tell them how pretty their dog is because they are attached to their life. Don't tell them, oh, what's this dog doing in your life? You are so stupid and attached and caught into Maya. You can tell them to one of your yoga colleagues if they show that they are spiritual practitioners and they are prepared to detach themselves and to understand but those who didn't ask for instruction and guidance, let them live their lives. They flow with the river and sooner or later they will become old enough spiritually, mature enough spiritually to ask for spirituality. Until that time, let them live. It's, in, it's inevitable that spirits which are at a lower level of evolution are attached to their actions. They are deluded by the gunas, they are blinded by the maya, and thus they are attached to the actions of the gunas. See that here Krishna again demonstrates a great wisdom which is politically incorrect because it says spirituality is not for everybody, only some people want to take spiritual teachings, and the others give them, many people say, oh why did Jesus make a church and the church created a hierarchy and with priests in every village. That's why. Because Jesus knew very well that not everybody wants to go in a cave 
like St. Mark of Ethiopia and pray for 40 years and reach enlightenment. Not every woman in this world would want to run in the desert like St. Mary of Egypt and spend 30 years in penance and asceticism. Therefore, what do you do with the 99% of the rest when you want to touch the masses? That's why, look what the masses do. Oh, St. Francis of Assisi in the Roman Catholic Church. St. Francis of Assisi is the saint of the cattle. When your cow is sick, you pray to St. Francis of Assisi. St. Anthony of Padua is the saint who finds lost objects and defy whatever. So whenever you can't find your car keys, you should say, St. Anthony, help me, help me, say, and then you are going to find your car keys as by a miracle. And St. Ives is the saint of the lawyers. So if you are a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, pray to St. Ives, and the list continues. See, people are not even interested about metaphysics and what is happening in the causal world. People are interested to have healthy cattle, to find their car keys, and to practice their lawyer profession. People are drawing the saints, are milking the saints for their needs in the daily life. They don't think about taking the daily life to God. No. They are not prepared to renounce their daily life. And that's why there is, and Jesus knew this, and Buddha knew this, and Krishna knew this. 99% of the people, they want a religion to satisfy their daily needs. That's all they need in that religion, not more than that. And that's why the religion is made like for retarded children very often. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's like Disney World. There are so many Svadistanistic, phantasmagoric things which are simply made for people, for simple people, that they can keep a connection. Because otherwise we'll make a rift in the world. There would be 1%, not even 1% unfortunately, but let's say there would be this 1% of people, which most of you are, who want to go Milarepa. And then there will be the others who will throw tomatoes and rotten eggs at you and say, what are these weirdos doing in our midst? We all are growing our cattle and kids and doing that. And then there are these people who don't even belong here. We don't even know what they are doing. That's why Jesus was smart. He said, let the great mystics preserve priesthood and hierarchy and an institution which will create an interface with the masses. You need to preserve friendship with the masses. You need to have a connection. You cannot separate completely, <clears throat> or you can, but it's not wise and not good. Because when you have somebody like St. Mark of Ethiopia, the example of St. Mark, although Tom, Dick and Harry cannot follow it, they hear about it in a preach made by the priest in the church, and they are wistful about it. Has hey, hey, we common mortals cannot do what St. Mark of Ethiopia did, but at least we uh, admire it, you know, we respect it. Yes, we know that there are some great men and great women who choose an arduous path to go uphill and... That's it. It's much wiser to do it this way than to say this is made for 1% of the people and the rest of you go drown yourselves because you are a bunch of ignorant who are attached to your actions and you don't know. So go suffer and whenever you have had enough of it, then come and we're going to teach you. That's not a friendly way of dealing with the ignorant. 
That's not a way. You have to keep your doors open. You have to, and that's why spirituality, especially when it has to become a mass spirituality, it's very difficult because it has to make lots of compromises. That's why many people don't understand, especially the religious spirituality, because the religious spirituality seems to be full of approximations, phantasmagoria, compromises, and it, those are necessary. They, it's very few people can understand that. But here Krishna says, let not him who knows the whole disturb the ignorant who knows only, who know only part. So again, 29 said, those deluded by the qualities of nature, by the gunas, are attached to the functions of the qualities, are attached to the gunas, to the actions. A man of perfect knowledge should not unsettle the foolish one of imperfect knowledge. It has been said very clearly. And that's why, again, many, many saints were having this double interface, you know, teaching the champions and at the same time friendly to the ignorant who are just waiting for their good time to blossom, to come to a higher wisdom. <clears throat> and then follows a part of this chapter in which Krishna basically, he kind of again and again wants to explain to Arjuna how to do it, which is the way to do it, how to be wise, how to act in a spiritual way, how to act in a karma-yogic way. And in these shlokas, which follow, the three following ones, Krishna is basically using a double entendre language, because all the time, until now, he spoke about the spirit, if you remember. He spoke about the consciousness, something higher than the mind, that there is the higher spirit, the the spiritual nature, the higher self, the supreme self, the Atman, and that one should be grounded in that knowledge. And when you are grounded in that knowledge, you know that all the actions on earth happen because of the gunas, and you do not consider yourself the author of those actions, and you are not attached to them, and thus you can reach true wisdom. And therefore, and therefore, all the time he spoke about the higher self. Until now, Krishna did not mention the higher reality as a divinity. And he mentioned himself, but not also as related to it. In what follows, you can read the statement of Krishna as speaking about the higher self, like consecrate everything to the higher self, to the Buddha nature, to the divine consciousness. But he at the same time, because Sanskrit is a very elastic language, he says it in such a way that it means also him as a person. So he speaks about God as Atman, Atman is God, the Supreme Self. Atman is Brahman, and that's impersonal spirituality, like in Vedanta. But at the same time, he speaks about he himself as God, and that's Bhakti Yoga, that's theistic spirituality. And he speaks about both of them, entwining them very beautifully, which is um, astonishing because, of course, it shows that Krishna has both of them, he knows both of them, and he knows that some people reading this text will click more to one of them, and some people reading this text will click more to the other. The more abstract thing is a more yogic thing for meditators, and the other one is more for people doing bhakti yoga, and simply for devotion, just for stimulating devotion. So here is how he says it. Shloka number 30. 
He says, surrendering all actions to me. To me, which means to me, like to my higher self. To me, like to me, I can say, I surrender all the actions to me. To my higher self. To Atman, Brahman. Surrendering all actions to me, but it can also mean to me, Krishna. Which I am an avatara and therefore I am a representative on earth, on God. That's exactly what Jesus would have said. Whoever comes to me, comes to God. It's exactly the same point of view. So he says, surrendering all actions to me by maintaining your consciousness in the self, which means in Sahasrara, in enlightenment, by staying in that higher consciousness. But he says, surrendering all actions to me. That's exactly what we express here in the lectures by the word consecration. That's how you surrender all your actions to God, by consecrating or to the spiritual consciousness. Surrendering all actions to me by maintaining your consciousness in the self, freed from longing and the sense of mine. So he adds a few conditions. Freed from longing, which means from desire. Like there should be no hankering. There should be, there should be sort of equanimity. And from <coughs> the sense of mine, ahamkara. So rising the consciousness above Ajna Chakra, where there is no more mental root of the ego, going above the sense of ahamkara. Fight. Because that's the point with Arjuna, in case you didn't get it. Arjuna doesn't want to fight. And actually he's supposed to. And Krishna tells him, coming back, let's get down to Trump's, surrendering all actions to me, therefore, O Arjuna, by maintaining your consciousness in the self, freed from longing. Like you shouldn't do it because you want to become king. You shouldn't do it because you want to become uh, rich. You shouldn't do it because you want to demonstrate that you are right. There should be no desire into it. You should be full of equanimity, dispassionate, freed from longing and the sense of mind. Like it's not me who is doing this. Forget about the me. Go up. Fight. Delivered from the fever of delusion. He compares delusion with a fever like somebody who is delirious. And fever, it illustrates so well this thing of desire because fever is like fire. And when you have too much fire, it's like your desire takes over you. You are possessed by it. So he says, renouncing all actions in me, consecrating them to me, with a mind centered in the self, that's the higher self, free from hope and egoism, like don't have desires, expectation, or the sense of I, and free from mental fever, without any mental fever, do thou fight. He basically gets back, because that's what we're talking about, Arjuna, that you don't want to fight. So when we get it down to things, so those are the conditions again. Surrendering all actions to the higher consciousness to God. Maintaining your consciousness in the self, in the higher self. Free from longing, like from desire, and from the sense of mine, like it's not me, it's the gunas acting upon the gunas, then do do, he says. And he continues, those men who are possessed of faith, who do not find fault and always follow this teaching of mine, they too are liberated from action. Like Arjuna 
is a kshatriya, he is a warrior, that's his dharma. But Krishna, when he gives this teaching, he gives it to the whole world. And he says, not only you, he says, also those men who have faith, like who believe this teaching which I gave to Arjuna, but which is for the whole mankind. Those men who are possessed of faith, who do not fa find fault with this teaching of mine. You wouldn't believe, like when we teach karma yoga, eventually there are people who consider it unacceptable, absurd. I have found people who even consider the idea of karma, which is one of the most elementary things in mysticism, in spirituality, especially the oriental one. It's mentioned in the Western traditions, but it's not called karma because this is a Sanskrit word. So it's mentioned like he who sows a wind rips a storm or something. It's called something else. It, but it is there, it's known that the universe bounces back at us always with what we do. And I met people who even considered that the law of karma is an invention which keeps people down because if people wouldn't believe in the law of karma, then they would feel free to do whatever stupid thing they wanted and they would be stronger, more outrageous, more like people don't kill each other because they believe that there is a karma if you kill each other. But if you stop believing in karma, then you are free to kill, for example. Isn't that a great gift that you are free? People with a demonic mind, they feel that any restriction is just a, they want to be free, but in a very demonic way, not in a spiritual way. And because of this, they find that any religious injunction, any moral or ethical advice, any system, any knowledge such as karma and so on, is just a yoke on the neck of the people who want to be free. But actually their freedom is the freedom to, to commit vice, is the, is the freedom to commit sin, is the freedom to commit evil. That's where they feel restricted. They feel, I'm too much afraid to go to hell and because of this I don't dare to do this. And then what should I do? I should convince myself that there is no hell. And then the result is that I can do a lot of shitty things because I'm not afraid anymore. That's not a very wise thing to eliminate all the proofs, all the fuses, all the safety blocks of the mind just because you want to, don't, to go down the abyss of destruction and self-destruction. Maybe those protections are good. Maybe actually our world would be much worse and much more violent if people wouldn't have some of these fears. Maybe some of these fears are actually welcome, either they are literally true or not. And that is why Krishna says it's a spiritual thing if you assume a positive system of faith. Now, I was telling in a lecture on the Easter time that some people all the time come and bring up absurd rationalism against the existence of Jesus and some of the things in the existence of Jesus, like his resurrection. But isn't that a great faith? Like you can believe that uh, we are brought here by the Trojans from Orion and whatever, some of these Scientological beliefs that we are aliens uh, brought to Earth. You can believe that this, and you can believe that 25 centuries ago a great man called Gautama Buddha reached enlightenment and he opened the path and he gave teachings and everybody here is a sleeping Buddha and one day you will become a full-fledged 
that's a good belief. No, it gives us it, sh it gives us a perspective. But then some people have the belief that the cosmic consciousness took a human body, blessed everybody through it, through an empathy, through a samyama. It's like God made samyama with each and every one of you identification and gave you the opportunity to be forgiven and saved by practicing love, compassion, and that therefore God is one of us. So what's wrong with this belief? Like, it's a good belief. It doesn't mean that I have to kiss the big toe of the Pope. It has nothing to do with in the institutionalization of religion. It simply means that I can cultivate in my soul a very beautiful faith. And as I told you so many times, this is one of the big obstacles. Not only that some people cannot have a beautiful faith, some people cannot have any faith because their Ajna Chakra is damaged big time and they cannot even believe in themselves. They can't believe in their life partners. They can't believe in their children. They can't believe in humanity. They can't believe in anything. And of course, they cannot believe in Shambhala or in the Buddhas of the past, present and future. Or they cannot believe in a cosmic consciousness that envelops us and is omnipresent and almighty. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Krishna is touching a very deep issue here because he says, those men who are possessed of faith and who do not find fault with this teaching of mine. Like, don't think that everybody believes in Bhagavad Gita. Mahatma Gandhi did. But there are many people among the rationalists or others who believe that Bhagavad Gita is shit. It sucks. It's just garbage. And so is the Bible. And so is, like, people unfortunately have big difficulties in assuming a faith. And even more, doing it deliberately. I don't believe in this because my mother and my grandmother believed in this. I believe in this because I choose to believe in this. I want to believe in this. I have decided to believe in this. And I am going to believe in this because that is my will. It's out my own sweet will to believe in this. Because this is a belief which helps me. It's a belief which blesses me. And therefore... Krishna says, exactly as people don't believe in Jesus and don't believe in Rumi, there are people who don't believe in my teachings as well. And it's exactly like Jesus who told to Thomas, Thomas, blessed are you because you saw my wounds and you believe that I am Jesus and I resurrected. But blessed are also those who didn't see me physically and still will believe in this. Like there are some people who simply say, you know what, I choose. I don't have any scientific proof to demonstrate that Jesus resurrected but I choose to believe because it doesn't cost me anything it actually gives me everything so why not have a belief which I'm choosing to have so Krishna is exactly along the same line he says but those who find fault who find I'm sorry those men who are possessed of faith who do not find fault in this teaching of mine and who always follow this teaching of mine like study the gunas do not get attached to the gunas Stay in the higher self. Consecrate, surrender all actions to the higher self or to God. Those people, they too are liberated from action. Like in this world, not everybody was initiated directly and clearly in Karma Yoga. 
There were people who did meditation other and other things, dervish, dancing, other and other things. And Krishna says those too are freed from action simply because they follow these ideas, they believe and they are cultivating a good faith. It's as simple as that. That's why, of course, faith is such a great mystery. And except in yoga where it is explained through the chakras and through the psychology of the being, it's like most people cannot do much about it. Faith is like artistic inspiration. You have it or you don't have it. It comes or it doesn't come. But it's not true exactly as artistic inspiration may be produced by synchronizing the brain hemispheres in Laya Yoga or by working on Vishuddha Chakra. Exactly in the same way faith can be produced exactly like love can be produced by working on the heart chakra. So that is the technical understanding which only yogis have. And of course, then he feels obliged to express the other side of it. And he says in the number 32, But those who find fault and do not follow my teaching, know them to be deluded about all knowledge, doomed and senseless. You don't need to rub it in the face of people, no? Theoretically, when I talked with one of those guys who told me, Swami, I think that there is no karma. I think karma is just an invention to keep people under control and suppress them. I don't believe in karma. Then theoretically, I should have quoted this. Krishna says, oh dear fellow, that you are deluded about all knowledge, doomed and senseless. Then I would have sounded like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Oh, you are all going to burn with brimstone and fire and you are going to hell because you don't... It's Krishna has just said it before. Let the ignorant consume their own ignorance. Do not disturb their minds. Call their attention. It rings a bell. It doesn't ring a bell. It's up to them to find out about this. So those who carp at my teaching and do not practice it, deluded in all knowledge and devoid of discrimination, Know them to be doomed to destruction. This is a very hard statement that they are deluded about all knowledge, senseless, doomed, doomed. Like it's a very big word, you know, in a, in a spiritual environment like this. And yes, of course, if there is no knowledge, then there is no salvation, at least not in this lifetime. And if there is no salvation in this lifetime, then long time will have to pass. Death will come and it will be frightening. The bardo, the 49 days after death, they will also be frightening and hard. Then you are going to be hundreds of years in the astral world and it may be nasty, unpleasant, not as good as you thought it was going to be. And then you are going to be reborn again and your karma can create a very shitty life in the future as well. And that's also going to be full of misery. And therefore... This Krishna says, you are doomed. You are doomed what? You are doomed to learn the hard way. You do not have the necessary wisdom to listen to what Krishna says and learn. That's exactly what Jesus says. He says there are those who hear and they are not listening. There are those who see and they do not understand. He says, and in some place Jesus says, not all the words which I am speaking stay within you. Like they are flying through you. I'm talking and you are not listening. To how many people did Jesus speak 
Do you think that everybody became a loving Anahata Chakra spiritual person? No. Because his words did not stay with them. They are not ripe for it. They are not prepared for it. And thus, they are in the terminology of Krishna, doomed. The doom is not like you are doomed that you go to hell forever. The doom is that you still have to bite the dust. You are like a moth around a lamp and you are going to get your wings burned again and again because that's the fate of every moth around every lamp. To just spin aimlessly and eventually get burned in the process. Thus, Krishna simply calls this a doom. Many people would say, hey, what a doom. You just continue with your chain of reincarnations and sooner or later, yes, this thing which most people look upon with relaxation, Krishna doesn't look upon it with relaxation. Krishna calls it a doom. He says, yeah, yeah, keep on staying and biting the dust. This I call a doom. For me, it's a doom, implicitly says Krishna. It's not a doom. Remember, nobody is destroyed forever. Even the demons from the hells, one day they will finish paying their demonic karma and they will start going towards Buddhahood. There is no sentient being in all the lokas of this universe who will not evolve and one day reach the spirituality. But it may take a long, long time and a lot of biting of the dust, a lot of pain. And that's why wisdom and spirituality is for those who don't want to bite the dust and to repeat the mistakes of other people and they who feel that they are wise enough to learn from that. Krishna gives you the best and he says, if you are possessed with fight and faith and listen to this teaching and follow it, you are liberated from action. Otherwise, doom. And he continues changing a little bit the pattern and here he touches a very beautiful scene which will occupy the end of this lecture of this discourse of tonight. He says, creatures follow their own nature. Even the enlightened man acts according to his own nature. What can restraint accomplish? It's beautiful. So beautiful. I read Bhagavad Gita first time probably some 30, 29, 28 years ago. I don't even remember when I first read it. And I never understood this. I didn't try to learn it by heart. But I know for sure that this little sentence and this shloka eluded me. Because I didn't have a clue. I was having a foolish belief about things. And I kept on having that foolish belief for years. Until talking with great teachers from India, like with Swami Krishnananda and others, they clarified it suddenly and suddenly in a fraction of a second I could see, due to the meditation and other accomplishments and the grace of some of these teachers who poured this knowledge with me, I could see it. Listen again to what Krishna says. He says, creatures follow their own nature. The bull fights with its horns and the eagle with its talons. Everybody follows from creatures and human beings. Even the enlightened man acts according to his own nature. 
That's something which contradicts my beliefs from those days. I foolishly believed that the enlightened people surpass their own nature and they are not bound by their own nature anymore. Because that's what Patanjali seems to imply in the Yoga Sutra. And this is what you hear in all sorts of legends and myths from India, from Tibet and others, where enlightened beings are praised beyond measure, like they don't need to eat, they don't need to sleep, they don't need to fart, they don't need to do anything, because they are floating in heaven somewhere there. But look what Krishna said in Bhagavad Gita, the Bible of the Hindus. Even the enlightened man acts according to his own nature. And as I said so many times in lectures, you can see it actually on enlightened beings. When you put together Swami Shivananda with Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and with Sri Aurobindo, just to quote three of the greatest enlightened beings of India in the last 200 years, you can see their astrological signs, for example, obviously. There is a theory which says when your Anahata Chakra with well the 12 spokes is activated, those 12 spokes representing the 12 signs of the zodiac, then you transcend time, you transcend biorhythm, you transcend ups and downs, and the person whose consciousness goes to Vishuddha or higher chakras is no longer dependent on the astrological sign or like you're out. But the truth is that I was living in an illusion because I had never seen, I was imagining, because some of these myths are very foggy, and when you read about Adi Shankaracharya or others, you think you know the person, but it's a very, very general description which doesn't tell you the daily life details about how that person really was or lived. And then I was believing that all these people were way beyond uh, their astrological determinism and others. And actually, guess what? When I opened my eyes and looked carefully, I saw that even the enlightened beings were living according to their own nature. And of course, their own nature doesn't mean only the astrological sign under which they are born. That's just one facet of it. There are many, many other such aspects, like the body typology, the prakriti according to the Ayurvedic medicine, the temperament according to the four basic temperaments, sanguine, phlegmatic, and all those, the Enneagram typology, the nine personalities according to the Enneagram, and many other things, not only the astrological things, all of them are the same, always. And the enlightened beings, they don't go beyond that. They actually live according to that. No? Like if Swami Shivananda settled down and built an ashram, and the kitchen for the Babas, and the university, and the printing press, and wrote 200 books, and the hospital, and an eye hospital, and a colony for the lepers, and this and that. And obviously he has this mulatharistic, stable typology, and his body is the body of a buffalo, and all that. And Ramakrishna Paramahamsa never wrote anything was always an airy person going through the red light district and watching Farang movies in Calcutta and was always a progressive dreamer dreaming about a brave new world and was skinny and the older he was getting the skinnier he was getting and so on. And if you ask the question which one of them was a Virgo and which one of them was an Aquarius 
you have to be totally ignorant of astrology not to be able to say which one of them is the Virgo and which one of them is the Aquarius. And then you take Sri Aurobindo, who after having been an advocate of the independence of India became a mystic and reached enlightenment. But of course he still kept emotional connections with, his, uh, with this big project of having seeing India free. And then he says, after all, there cannot be a coincidence that India has obtained its independence on my birthday. <laughs> which would be 15th of August and would make Sri Aurobindo a Leo. You would never have a Virgo saying such a rubbish sentence. Only a Leo believes that India got its independence on his birthday and it's very significant because this means that somehow I am determinating for the history of India. I am embedded in the very soul. The whole India is spinning around my little finger or belly button or whatever it is. A Leo would always believe that because he is the sun and everything spins around the sun. But again, others would not. Ramakrishna being an Aquarius never thought that the whole India and the history of it depended on his birthday or on his belly button or on his august presence or anything like this. That's why, yes, Krishna is so very true. Even the enlightened man acts according to his own nature, not in selfish ways, not in evil ways, not in dark ways, not in limited and ignorant ways, but still the ways are there. Like, of course, nobody would blame Sri Aurobindo for saying such a bombastic sentence. At the best, if you have a sense of humor, you just laugh and say, Leos, spiritual Leos, you know? Like, and then, of course, you can laugh of spiritual Scorpios and spiritual Virgos and spiritual Gemini. Everybody has a weird thing. Spiritual Libras. Mananda Mai, going like chaff in the wind in three places of India instead of just settling down and doing some more work. No, you can laugh of Mananda Mai, you can laugh of Swami Shivananda. Swami Shivananda was 70 years old, he was diabetic, he was severely overweight, and he was known that he was eating more than one kilo of sugar granules per day, this thing which is brought to Prasad. In India, they have this white sugar thing, which they always give us prasad. And somebody asked him, Swamiji, you are old and you are fat and diabetic. And why do you eat sugar on top of like, you want to kill yourself? And Swami Shivananda said, you know, people donate it and they expect me to eat it. It's like an offering for them. And I have to sacrifice myself and... Really, do, does any one of you think that Ramakrishna was eating one kilo of sugar per day? He also knew that people brought stuff and it was, but it didn't click on him. Everybody filters through their mind something. Of course, a Kapha person, a Kapha Mulataristic Virgo would fall for sugars and things like this. Every, even the sages act according to their own nature. It may not be a destructive, evil, terrible, selfish something, but it's still there. You should hear our friends who have been, I have not personally been there, but both Sahajananda and Mihaela have been in Suanmok in the old days for some, and there the hero is Buddha Dasa, a great Buddhist monk of Thailand, 
who has been considered an enlightened being. But the only paradoxical thing about this holy Buddha Dasa, who is indeed a remarkable, spiritual, amazing person, is that he was severely fat. And everybody asks, how can a Buddhist monk, who is not supposed to eat any solid food after 12 o'clock noon, and is supposed to eat meager and modestly, just to beg some grains of rice and something in the morning, how does he get obese? And everybody in that monastery will tell you, he was secretly stuffing his face. He was a glutton. Was he enlightened and glutton for food? Yes. That's what I could not believe 25 years ago. I could not believe that Swami Shivananda would eat sugar granules without him being specially instructed by Archangel Michael or by Shambhala that he has to eat those granules because there is a mystical, metaphysical, magical, absolute... Per Krishna said it very clearly, but I didn't have eyes for it. I was not ripe for it to understand it. Krishna says it very clearly. Even the enlightened man acts according to his own nature. The one who is loquacious remains loquacious. The one who is taciturn stays taciturn. The one who is a steaming social animal is a steaming social enlightened animal. The one who is a loner remains a loner. The one who the, the nature remains the same because most often you don't need to correct that nature. The gunas are acting upon the gunas. Why make any fuss about it? The gunas are acting upon the gunas. Why do you try to change the gunas? The nature is moving and it's always been moving. Are you trying to change the course of the river? The river has been flowing from before you existed on this planet and it will keep flowing practically forever. So therefore, it's no use to change the gunas. The only problem is about what do I do about myself? It's my personal history. It's my spiritual realization. I, I'm not trying to save the river. I'm trying to save myself. The, the Vedas say very clearly, first save yourself. Like most people first try to save the world. The whales, the whatever, other people. But the Veda, the Vedic texts say very clearly, this is not selfish. First save yourself because there is a big, big illusion. Most people live in a dream, in an illusion. When you have saved yourself, then you can evaluate it in a totally different way. So, he says, even a wise man acts in accordance with his own nature. Beings are always following nature. What can restraint do? Like, the, the point is not in restraint. Of course, you can say, oh, so if somebody has the nature to kill somebody, that's not really in the nature. The lions, not the astrological lions, the lions as animals and the tigers, they are carnivorous predators. And it is in their nature to kill. And unless you want to perform a miracle like that yogi from the book of Yogananda, you cannot transform a, li a lion or a tiger into a vegetarian. Because their dentition and their intestines, their bowels, are not built for vegetarian food. And if you do them vegetarian, they will live short, they will be sick and weak, and they will die before their time. They are built for that. That's their nature. In the case of the human being, we can far from it say that the human being is made to kill. When you look at a naked baby, at a beautiful naked human being in the middle of nature, 
They may look very beautiful and very harmonious, but they don't look like a killing machine. Even in terms of diet, nutritionists point that actually the dentition and the intestines of the human being are not at all carnivorous. The teeth, we don't have carnivorous animals' teeth, and our small intestine is so long, and the colon on top of that, the large intestine, that they are exactly the same proportion as for herbivorous animals, not for carnivorous animals. And therefore, this was just a parenthesis, but saying that this story, like what can restrain do? You have to follow your nature. Some evil-minded people, they can think that this means that it's a license for everybody to do whatever they want, whenever they want. That's not the way Krishna meant it. Krishna simply meant it that everybody has to follow even in spirituality, even as you do spirituality, and even as you have a beautiful faith, you have to follow your nature. The bull fights with its horns and the eagle with its talons. You cannot make a swap between those two. And that's why this is the, the true meaning of it. Creatures follow their nature, even enlightened beings follow their own nature, which is hard to believe and to understand. What can then restraint accomplish? It doesn't mean you should do shit. It means you should not use restraint trying to force yourself to be what you are not. You should not try to live in the shoes of another person. You should do spirituality according to your talents. Because every person in this room and every person in this world has special talents. Some people are very silent and committed. Some people are very strong. Some people have willpower. Some people have discipline. Some people have love. Some people have intelligence. Some people have a huge vitality and sexuality. Some people, everybody has a quality. And Krishna simply says, do not try to restrain your, the person who is of little intelligence tries to study philosophy and metaphysics. Come on, you must have some other quality than that. Don't try to live in other people's shoes just because snobbishly it looks good. Find out which is your strength, which is your nature, and use that in spirituality. Therefore, it's much, much more important because, again, when you come into a yoga school, you take a system. Everybody learns Padahastasana, everybody learns the vowel pranayama, everybody learns this and that. But then as the years pass, you can see that every yogi or yogini who develops, who grows up, starts doing a practice of their own. And some are more physical, some are more intellectual, some insist more on sexual tantra, some are more devoted and they go in their love of God. Everybody has to find what they are good for. And of course, that's where the instruction from a teacher and a spiritual guide helps you, pinpointing for you which are your strong sides and therefore which is the best path for you. And he continues, he basically wants to say something about following your own nature, but of course in a spiritual, harmonious way, using Instead of fighting with yourself, understanding yourself and using your best thing. And that's why, of course, he wants to define a little bit the 
the problem and he gets back into the jnana yoga approach from chapter 2 where he kept on speaking about the problem between the minds and the senses that the senses disturb the mind and when the mind is disturbed there is no peace and when there is no peace one cannot reach spirituality and all that and that was a strong thing commented and it's common with the yoga sutra of patanjali that's the sort of raja yoga and vedanta insists much on that as well and he comes back to that, now preparing that thing with the senses. He says, the attachment and aversion of each sense are located in the object of that sense. Like, I, something is not smelling good, and I, am aver I have aversion, but it's because of the object of the sense. That is something which doesn't smell good, and so on. So he says, like, this is elementary, psychologically speaking. Then he says, let no man come under their sway, the sway of the senses and the objects of senses, for both indeed are enemies besetting his path. And again, to read it in Shivananda's reading, attachment and aversion for the objects of the senses abide in the senses, let none come under their sway, for they are his foes. This is something which in the tantric tradition is interpreted the other way around, it's solved in the other way around, although the problem persists and psychologically it is there. This is the very level, the first time it appears is in the description of the levels of yoga as the eight stages of yoga by Patanjali in the level of Pratyahara. Pratyahara means isolation from the senses, like you should stop being disturbed by the five senses. When you want to go deeper and do meditation or whatever you want to go, you don't want to be disturbed by what you see or see inside your head. You don't want to be disturbed by what you hear or what you hear inside your head. You don't want to be disturbed by smell, touch, taste or the mental correspondences of those such as you may not feel a taste while you meditate but you may feel the desire for a taste like I would like to stop my meditation and go and eat some chocolate because I have an intense desire to eat some chocolate. It's still the sense of taste and Zvadhisthana which disturbs you, but it's not a physical taste, it's a mental taste, the memory of a taste, the desire for a taste. So all the senses have a physical manifestation, but they also have an inner manifestation. Like I don't see anything ugly outside, but as soon as I close my eyes, I start seeing demonic faces and ugly things scaring me or disturbing me. It's the sense of sight and Manipura Chakra, which is impure, but it's not a physical thing, it's an internal thing. So that's why with the senses it's a vast thing. And the idea in classical yoga, in Vedanta, and of course Krishna upholds it, is that the senses are enemies on the path. As long as you try to do something and all the time you are knocked by the five senses, you are like never going to go forward because you are like a billiard ball. You are knocked from all sides and you can't keep your direction. And thus you have to learn to do pratyahara and then concentration, meditation and samadhi to kind of go along your line without... So that's essential and elementary and we teach it with the difference that how do you get not disturbed by the senses? Different traditions follow different methods. For example, somebody can say that you don't get attached to chocolate by 
not touching chocolate for 30 years and then the sense for chocolate, the samskara for it will die, will wither like a plant which has no water and you'll simply forget that you ever ate chocolate and that you ever had a desire for chocolate. Of course, most of you can't believe it because most of you never tried to refrain from chocolate or something which you like for more than a month or two or three and you didn't surpass the bump the threshold and you never saw that there is a level where you can reach peace because that would take years before you reach it and everybody stops too early and says no no way for me to give up sweets or something because of course it takes a considerable effort and a considerable length of time nobody underestimates that so you can kill it but yes you can kill it like people say, but if I don't eat chocolate for 20 years, if I don't eat it for three days, my desire is like this. If I don't eat it for three weeks, my desire becomes terrible. And if I don't eat it for three months, my desire becomes insane completely. So if I don't eat it for 30 years, then I'll probably... No. There is a break point and at some point it disappears, it dies, it withers like a plant which has no water. So one way is of course to stop the disturbing effect of the desires on the mind by simply shutting them down, squeezing them down. And the tantric tradition simply says, satisfy them, but satisfy them with consecration and transfiguration, like in the tantric sexuality, and blow them out of proportion so that they become divine, cosmic, and thus spiritual. And the same sweet taste of the chocolate can become ananda, can become bliss it can become samadhi a piece of chocolate can produce samadhi if you focus on it like with a magnifying glass or with a microscope it can become huge people say what a piece of chocolate is a piece of chocolate i eat one of those every day yes because you eat them hastily and without awareness and without transfiguration and then everything no uh, every man or woman can say my sexual partner is just a piece of flesh but when you do Tantra, you can say, my sexual partner is a god. And right now I'm making love with a deity. I'm making love with an aspect of the divinity. And this transfigures me and makes me divine and makes me discover the divinity through a simple mechanical act like the act of sexuality. And thus, it's the same with the chocolate. What can be applied for sexuality can be applied for any other of the senses. A piece of chocolate can just be some sugar with cocoa and butter and whatever it is, but a piece of chocolate can be the nectar of the gods, it can be soma, it can be ecstasy from God, it can be prasad, it can be the body and flesh of Christ, it can be whatever you want it to be, you transfigure it. No, Christian saints have taken bread and wine and transfigured them in God. And they never accept, if you would ask the mystics, if you would read the mystical writings, no Christian saint would say that the Christian Eucharist is bread and wine. That's what the materialists and the non-believers believe. The Eucharist is not made of bread and wine. It's bread and wine in the beginning of the Mass. But in the end of the Mass, it has become the, bloody and f the, the blood and flesh of Christ. And it's God. So when you eat that, it's transubstantialized. It's transmuted into atoms of light. It's something, that's what their faith wants it to be. It's again, a good belief. It's a good faith. Why not believe in something big? 
then, so instead of eating bread and wine, you are eating peace of God. And that divinizes you. It's a matter of what you choose to believe. It's exactly the same thing here that the senses, to master the senses, the understanding of it, most people in India will read this in the Vedantic and classical yoga way, which is restrictive. They don't have attachment and aversion to each sense, don't come under their sway because they are enemies on the path. How do you do that? By giving up all your senses. Shouldn't eat good food, shouldn't see beautiful things, shouldn't masturbate your five senses with anything pleasurable, because then you get attached to them. The tantric tradition says there is, by the way, another way in which instead of refraining, you satiate, you satiate them, you fill them up, you get them to plenary impregnation. Like if you have an attraction towards the chocolate, make that chocolate be God. Eat God. God eats God. I am God. The chocolate is God. The process of perception of the bliss of the chocolate is God. God is everywhere. And thus eating chocolate can become a meditation and a rising of Kundalini and an enlightenment. Therefore, remember here we have an open-minded attitude towards this while it's true. And he is literally true, and it is only in this shloka. He just brings it from the previous chapter. Remember what I told you, Arjuna, in the previous chapter, that the senses are your enemies, because he tries to describe this way of acting with detachment and acting according to your nature, but in a spiritual way. And, therefore, he simply says this, but the interpretation of it can be given in different ways. What does practically result from this? Different gurus and different yoga schools and different spiritual teachings would use different methods to deal with this issue. The issue, theoretically, metaphysically speaking, is true. But how you deal with it, that depends from teaching to teaching, from teacher to teacher, and all the others. So, to conclude, or actually I will conclude next time because this will be a bit of a long one it's late enough uh, we started late so unfortunately we are going for a short time tonight but thus krishna is about to speak about one's own dharma which is a very very important concept and i'll have to make a longer commentary on the shloka number 35 about one's own nature what is your own nature and where does that go and by now he brought up this thing with that even the enlightened beings follow their nature there is no use for restraint you just have to look upon it as the gunas act upon the gunas and you have to understand that you should not come under the sway of the senses under the control of the senses but somehow manage to go beyond that to not be disturbed by the senses and now he comes to fruition, some important part, the end of this chapter follows in the next eight shlokas. With this we stop for tonight. Let us remain in silence for a couple of minutes just so that we don't move directly from the teachings of Krishna to agitation and movement. So just sit for a couple of minutes, be open, try not to think of anything. If you cannot, just use the mantra from Laya Yoga or whatever other method of meditation you know. Let these things impregnate you and go deep into the subconscious mind. And with this, we'll conclude 
in a couple of minutes. And that will do. With this, we stop for tonight. Namaste to all of you. I will see you in the next satsang.